Deep Cover Patriot does not endorse terrorism or violence. The United States Constitution and the Bill of Rights provide remedies for redress of grievances. Look to the founders first for guidance on the preservation of the Republic. Hello, patriots and other interested parties. May the presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, be in every part of your life. Today is Sunday, March 20th, 2022. I am Deep Cover Patriot and The Republic Stands. Today I want to take a different approach. Everything in this podcast has been carefully sourced from the Bible, the Midrash, rabbinical writings, archaeological and historical research, artifacts from museums such as the Louvre and the British Museum, multiple ancient written sources including Herodotus, and the courts of Sennacherib, Sargon, Nebuchadnezzar, Alexander, and many more. This was a lot of hard work, so we begin. The world is going to hell, and we all know it. But why? Where? Well, we know what it isn't, even if the MSM, as well as many so-called conservatives, news sources would have us believe otherwise. It isn't Ukraine, although that is our focus lately. It isn't Taiwan, although it very well will soon be, not the southern border or Mexico, Brazil, India, or Canada. It is the alignment of world powers, long in the making, that is now happening with increasing ferocity, which will culminate in alliances that we have only read about in the Bible and military briefings. To understand what is happening now, it is necessary to look back and see if there is anything else, any other time in history that we can use to understand a bit better and to maybe give us an outline of what is and will be happening. Every year since 2001, Nicolas Lenivets, a popular art park about 220 kilometers from Moscow, has celebrated the Slavic holiday of Maslenitsya by burning a specially made artwork. This year, on March 14th, 2022, the Nicolas Lenivets Art Village in Russia celebrated Maslenitsya by burning a 23-meter-tall wooden tower of Babel. Maslenitsya symbolizes the past passing of winter and the coming of spring, a new beginning. But this year, the artistic tradition has been more grandiose and more meaningful than ever. A 23-meter-tall wooden tower of Babel designed by young architect Ekaterina Polyakova was set ablaze in a ceremony designed to symbolize the end of discord between nations. Hmm. Ite was the name of the large temple tower in Babylon, also known as the Tower of Babel. Its Sumerian name means House of the Foundation of Heaven on Earth. And in case we need a refresher, from Genesis. The whole earth was of one language and of one speech, and it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found the plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick stone and slime, they had mortar. And they said, Come, let us build a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make a name, lest we be scattered abroad the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men built, and the Lord said, Behold, the people are one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do, and now nothing will be withheld from them which they have imagined to do. Come, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore is the 
the name of it called Babel, that is confusion, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon all the face of the earth, unquote. But who built the tower, and why? Surely some person had to have thought it up, or at least financed it, or ever saw its construction. Well, there was. And once you know who built the tower, and why, you will have a better understanding of the some events happening in the world today. First, what did the Tower of Babel look like, and how do we know? Well, because all things are revealed, eventually, we do know. The Hebrew word Babel, confusion, is often used for Babylon, but this is not sufficient to prove the identification of the tower with a monument in this big city. Imagine a legend about the unity of mankind, which is situated by scholars in Chicago. Fortunately, this story contains a second geographical clue. The tower was erected on a plain in the land of Shinar. This country is known from other books of the Bible, Isaiah and Zechariah, and is translated as Babylonia in the Septuagint. So, there is nothing that keeps us from identifying the biblical building with the monument in ancient Babylon. This must be the building known as Etemenanki, the house of the foundation of heaven on earth, a giant mountain of bricks and tiles with on top a temple for the god Marduk. He had a second temple in the neighborhood, the Ezagia. The ancient Babylonians called these brick mountains a Zigoratu or Ziggurat, which can be translated as rising building. And you can think of the Muslim pyramids that you see that are stepped and, you know, they're squares, one on top of the other in descending order of size rather than smooth. So the type of temple tower is the oriental equivalent of the Egyptian pyramid, and it's just as old, although there are two differences. The ziggurat was not a tomb, and it was used as um, a monument to the joining of earth to heaven, not the other way around. The E. Temenanki was among the largest of these and the most important. According to the Babylonian creation epic Enuma, Elise, the god Marduk, defended the other gods against the diabolical monster Tiamat. After he had killed it, he brought order to the cosmos, built the Ezekia, which was the center of the new world, and created mankind. The E. Temenanki was next to the Ezekia, and this means that the temple tower was erected at the center of the world, as the axis of the universe. Here, a straight line connected heaven and earth. This aspect of Babylonian cosmology is echoed in the biblical story where the builders say, quote, let us build a tower whose top may reach unto heaven, unquote, in the uh, long list of things one does not attempt to say to God. So, we continue. The best description of the monumental tower can be found in a cuneiform tablet from Uruk, written in 229 BC. It's a copy of an older text and it's now in the Louvre in Paris. It states that the tower was made up of seven terraces and it gives the height of the seven stocks, 91 meters in all. The ground floor measured 91 by 91 meters, and this is confirmed by archaeological excavations conducted by Robert Holdaway after 1913. Large stairs were discovered at the south side of the building, where a triple gate connected the Etemenanki with the Esagia. A larger gate in the east connected the Etemenanki with the sacred procession road. Seen from the triple gate, the Etemenanki must have resembled a true stairway to heaven, because the gates on the higher terraces seemed to be standing on top of each other. On the highest terrace was a temple dedicated to the Babylonian supreme god Marduk. This is the point where a Another text becomes used in histories of by the Greek researcher Herodotus of Halicarnassus in the 5th century. The Temple of Bel, the Babylonian Zeus, was still in existence in my time, he says. It has a solid central tower, one stadium square, that's a Greek stadium in circumference at the base, with a second erected on top of it, and then a third, and so on up to eight. All eight towers can be climbed by a spiral way running around the outside, and about halfway up there are seats for those who make the ascent to rest on 
Babylon. On the summit of the topmost tower stands a great temple with a fine large couch in it, richly covered, and a golden tablet beside it, unquote. And if you would like a visual present representation of that, then uh, go online and look up pictures of the headquarters of the European Union in Brussels, and you will see an exact 3D duplicate of what the top of the Tower of Babel resembled when it was abandoned. So the Etemenanki is mentioned for the first time in the annals of the Assyrian king Sennacherib, who claims that he destroyed the temple tower of his Babylonian enemies in 689 BC. Although he certainly sacked Babylon, it is impossible that his looting soldiers destroyed the Etemenanki. The wholesale destruction of large-scale structures is the prerogative of the modern age. Ancient armies were incapable of destroying a large building, not to mention a literal stairway to heaven, but I digress. The fact that Sennacherib could send an army against the Etemenanki proves that it was older, and it would be remarkable if it was not so by at least a thousand years. This is going to place it squarely where it needs to be in the biblical uh, 6,000 year timeline. After Sennacherib, Esarhaddon was king of Assyria around 680 BC. He allowed the Babylonians to rebuild their city. Another construction phase may have been after the war between the Assyrian king Assurbanipal and his brother Sama Sumukin, the viceroy of Babylon. When Babylonia became independent under Nabopolassar, there was renewed building activity, and finally, King Nebuchadnezzar is recorded as one of the builders. He finished the temple at the top, which was covered with a roof made of cedars from the Lebanon. The two last kings have boasted that the tower, quote, reached unto heaven, unquote. The building history suggests that the Babylonians were occupied with the construction of the tower for over a century. It is possible that the ambitious design of a tower at 300 by 300 by 300 feet was too grandiose so that they needed as much time for their project as the medieval builders of the European cathedrals. For a long time, the tower must have looked unfinished, and this may explain how the biblical story came into being. It is certainly possible that the sanctuary was never finished at all. The truth must be that by the time of Alexander, the ziggurat had fallen into disrepair. Buildings made of brick easily fall apart and need permanent care in the hot climate of the Near East. There is one badly damaged source quoted here that suggests that the Persian king Artaxerxes the fourth, Arziz, had already decided to restore the Ezekiah and the Etemenanki. Behaving like a Babylonian king was supposed to do, Alexander ordered 10,000 soldiers to remove the remains of the old building. Over a period of two months, April and May of 323, tiles and bricks were brought to the eastern part of the city. This time, the tower was not destroyed by an army looking for loot. It was a systematic attempt to clear the uh, building ground. Although the site was now cleared, the tower was never rebuilt. Although one scribe in Uruk said he was still hoping for its reconstruction and wrote the little tablet that we use uh, today and from which a lot of this material came. In the 19th century, the real Etemenanki was rediscovered by the native Arab population. So people of the nearby village wanted to create a palm garden and discovered ancient bricks when they lowered the groundwater level. German engineers understood the significance and in 1913, Robert Coldaway started the excavation of the Etemenanki. So today there's only four original channels and that can be seen. The rest of the site is overgrown with weeds. So we know there was an actual Tower of Babel, and I got a very much heightened sense of spiritual perception when I researched this and, and dug all this up. And it was built by Marduk. Well, it was built by a man who became a king, and then after he died, a god of the ancient Babylonians. 
So Cush was the father of Nimrod, who grew to be a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That is why it is said, quote, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord, unquote. The centers of his kingdom were Babylon, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in Shinar, and that's out of Genesis 10. Many consider this to be a positive, complimentary testimony about Nimrod. It is just the opposite. First, a little background. Nimrod is the prototype of a rebellious people, his name being interpreted as he who made all the people rebellious against God. Not a good thing to say to somebody. Nimrod was the first hunter. He was also the first to make war on other people. And his great success in hunting was due to the fact that he wore the coats of skin which God made for Adam and Eve, which is just incredible. These coats were handed down from father to son, right? So um, they, the, the skins came into the possession of Noah, who took them with him into the ark. Then they were stolen by Ham, who gave them to his son Cush, who then gave them to uh, Nimrod. When Nimrod was 18, war broke out between the Hamites, his uh, fellows, and the Japhethites. The Japhethites were at first victorious, but Nimrod, at the head of a small army of Cushites, attacked and eventually defeated them, after which he was made king over all the people on earth. Uh, he appointed Terah, Abraham's father, as his minister. It was then that he was so pumped up on all this glory that he, uh, Nimrod changed his behavior toward Yahweh, toward God, and became like an incredibly flagrant idolater and just demonic. So Nimrod suggested building the Tower of Babel and directed its construction. And God said, quote, I made Nimrod great, but he built a tower in order that he might rebel against me, unquote. After the builders of the tower were dispersed, when the confusion of language was smote upon them by God, literally, Nimrod remained in Shinar, where he reestablished his kingdom. Now, the punishment visited on the builders of the tower uh, did not cause Nimrod to change his conduct. He remained an idolater. He particularly persecuted Abraham, who, by his command, was thrown into a heated furnace. And when Nimrod was informed that Abraham had come forth from the furnace uninjured, Nimrod remitted his persecution of the worshiper on Yahweh. So he, okay, fine, I'll leave him alone. But on the following night, he saw a dream. Uh, he had a dream in which he saw a man coming out of the furnace and advancing toward him with a drawn sword. And the dream was interpreted as forecasting Nimrod's defeat by Abraham, wherefore Nimrod sent secretly to kill Abraham. But the Abraham uh, family immigrated to the land of Canaan, where uh, he, you know, he really became Abraham. And sometime after that, Nimrod was slain by Esau. But that's another really neat and incredible story for another time. So in Russia, a replica Tower of Babel was burned. And according to biblical understanding, the Tower of Babel is mankind's first attempt to build a world empire that would unite all the peoples and nations that inhabited the earth. It is mankind's first attempt to challenge God and take his place. It was God himself who destroyed the tower. The fact that Russia has just now decided to burn a replica of the Tower of Babel has a very clear symbolic meaning. The world was united under one man long ago, a uniting by force of arms and by enslavement, by starving out the people and then working them to death. The world we just heard about is the same one we are in today. At the top of the heap of influence, we have many men who vie for the command of the entire regime, the worldwide regime. However, that honor will be given to only one man. And Nimrod was the very definition of the Antichrist. The wars and rumors of wars, the unrest and mistrust, all of this will and very soon erode into a real shooting war everywhere. When the modern Nimrod, the Antichrist, ends this war with a seven-year peace, the whole world will laud his power and fall to their knees in gratitude for their deliverance. Believe me, you're going to see it if you survive what's coming. However, just as Nimrod, the Antichrist will twist his rule into one of terror and persecution, building out as his monument not a tower of brick and stone, but a tower of corpses, covering the earth in tribute to the fallen angels who were struck down out of heaven like so many bull 
bolts of lightning, hitting the earth and charging it with the electricity of evil fear. This will, after all is said and done, not be the end of man. Our Savior is coming to redeem us from all of this. Our Father, God in heaven, is very patient and long-suffering. But if the Bible is to be understood correctly, his patience is nearly at an end. And very soon, the events we set in motion through our greed, avarice, love of self, and our ignoring of God, all of this will culminate in a war and pestilence that will wipe out a third of us. We must understand where we came from, not to stop where we are collectively going, but to keep in mind that there is nothing new under the sun, and that God will send our Redeemer, just as he did 2,000 years ago. And this time, many Christians will be there to see him in all of his glory as he descends out of heaven and puts an end to the rule of Satan for a thousand years. So stay safe, be vigilant, pray, pray. Remember to call upon the name of Jesus Christ, neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven, whereby we must be saved. I pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Have mercy upon me, a sinner. May God bless you, and God save the Republic. Amen. Well, we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence, on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of elections, on intimidation instead of free choice, on guerrillas by night instead of armies by day. It is a system which has conscripted vast human and material resources into the building of a tightly knit, highly efficient machine that combines military, diplomatic, intelligence, economic, scientific, and political operations. Its preparations are concealed, not published. Its mistakes are buried, not headlined. Its dissenters are silenced, not praised. No expenditure is questioned, no rumor is printed, no secret is revealed.